You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Before we begin, this episode contains descriptions of violence against women. The women at the heart of this story were murdered in 2015. The inquest didn't happen until last summer. And this month, the federal government acknowledged what so many advocates, activists, and Canadians had been telling them. Intimate partner violence is an epidemic in this country. In the years between 2015 and that acknowledgement, hundreds of women were killed by intimate partners. When the pandemic arrived, it got worse. In a lengthy letter dated August 14th of this year, Canada's Justice Minister vowed at long last to tackle the problem. It starts with that acknowledgement. But where does it go from there? What steps is this government, as well as provinces and cities across the country, prepared to take to make a difference? This is the story of the long road from murders in a small Ontario community to a national promise, at long last, to do a better job of keeping Canadian women safe. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Julie Lalonde is a woman's rights advocate and educator, an expert in criminal harassment and intimate partner violence, and the author of Resilience is Futile, The Life and Death of Julie S. Lalonde. Hello, Julie. Hello. Thanks for having me. You're most welcome. Thank you for joining us again. I want to start, I guess, I know we've talked about it uh, on this show before. We've also interviewed one of the journalists who chronicled the entire incident. But maybe for people who haven't listened to those episodes, because it's such an important case, can you summarize, I guess, the tragedy that initially led to the inquest that we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, in September of 2015, three women, Carol Colton, Natalie Warmerdam, and Anastasia Kuzik, were killed in the same morning by the same man, a man who uh, a few of them had dated and all of them had been stalked by. This is someone who had been criminalized for committing violence against women, against those particular women, and he was able to murder them all that morning in September of 2015, which was, at the time, one of the worst intimate partner femicides we'd ever seen in Canadian history. What had to happen for those murders uh, of these women to not become another intimate partner violence statistic? Like, what do you think it was uh, about this story and maybe the reporting on it that came afterwards that has had such a far-reaching impact? I think the reason why this case has resonated with folks, you know, where it happened is a very small community outside of uh, the Ottawa Valley. Um, But I think the reason why it resonated with people is because it was such a blatant example of systemic failure This is someone who was first charged with intimate partner violence in 1985 and was able to commit a triple femicide in 2015. Like, this is somebody who was committing violence against women for 30 years, who had been in and out of the criminal justice system and was never really held accountable or rehabilitated. And so I think this particular case drove home how women can only do so much and communities can only do so much. If the system doesn't do its job, women are being left to be prey. And many of us are living as though our lives are a ticking time bomb. In this case, had the women tried to protect themselves from him in the absence of a system that wasn't working for them? 
They had. So one of the women had, uh, at least one of the women we know, had security cameras in her home. She had what is ostensibly like a panic button to hit, and she used it that day. But because she lived in a rural area, it took the OPP a number, almost over a half an hour for them to reach her home because she lived so rurally. These are women who had called police because they had been harmed by him. And this is someone who was out on parole who had conditions that he was violating. And at no point did his probation or parole officers actually, you know, put him back into custody because he was violating his parole. And that included things like um, what we call the PAR program, which is basically sort of anger management. It's for perpetrators of intimate partner violence to learn better skills so that they don't continue to commit violence against women. And he just wasn't attending those appointments. And that should be enough for him to have been put back in custody. And it didn't happen. So it's like, truly, these women were doing everything they could to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And they're not here today. And they should be. Leaving aside, you know, sort of the spree nature of those deaths and, and that horrific crime, how common is the situation we're talking about? I've heard you speak about this before, you know, an intimate partner violence victim doing everything they can and still ending up in this situation. Yeah, it is horrific what is going on in regards to violence against women in this country, men's violence against women. And even if you're looking at the most extreme case, so femicide, which is what happened to these women, which is when women are killed because they are women, the conditions that women live in, it has gotten exponentially more lethal for women in this country since the pandemic. So we had 184 femicides in 2022 compared to 148 in 2019. So men killing women in Canada has increased by 27% just since the beginning of the pandemic. Like it is so dangerous to be a woman in an abusive relationship and fleeing an abusive relationship. And I think because the pandemic was the story for so long, we were able to kind of keep a lot of this stuff in the shadows. And I think really naively thought, oh, well, if everyone's on lockdown, if people aren't traveling, if people aren't going out, then things must be safer. But those of us who work with women know that's actually the most dangerous time is any form of isolation is tremendously dangerous. Why is that? Because abusers keep us isolated. Abusers want us to be disconnected from community because community looks out for each other. If my sister knows what's going on, she's going to ask questions. Mm -hmm. She's going to come by more often. She might tell me to leave. Uh, and so abusers use isolation, telling them nobody understands you but me, punishing us if we go and hang out with friends or we're not responsive to text messages right away. What were you doing? Who are you talking to? And so it just becomes exhausting to even try to have a social life. And so we end up often acquiescing and thinking, okay, I'll just, you know, only be around you all the time and not go out and then my life will be easier. And I understand why folks feel that way, but you can see how those are conditions that happen at any time. But when we as a society are experiencing so much polarization, so much isolation, that's a recipe for disaster. In terms of the criminal harassment that can often lead up to femicide, I guess that's our term for stalking in Canada. And I know you've spoken in the past and, I mean, written in the past about your own experience in this area. If you don't mind, for listeners who don't have firsthand experience with what that's like, you know, can you try to explain to us what that does to a person? Stalking is a form of psychological terror, unlike anything else out there. And it is a form of violence in and of itself. But as you said, it is also a huge red flag. It is one of the biggest precursors to homicide is being stalked. And oftentimes, people don't understand it because the behavior by definition is meant to make you look 
frankly, insane, right? Hmm. Well, they just happen to be there. Oh, it's a coincidence, or maybe he lives in the same neighborhood. And so then you yourself start to doubt your perception of reality and you start to think, oh, maybe it is a coincidence and maybe it is this. And so you live in, you know, if anyone wants to nerd out with some like Foucault panopticon, it's really that idea of like, I could be locked in a dark room and have security guards at every corner and close my eyes and still feel like I'm being watched, still feel like I'm being followed. And so I act accordingly. I censor myself. I limit my movements. I'm hyper vigilant. These are all things that are deeply psychologically traumatizing, but also in addition, like in and of itself, but additionally, you feel like time is running out. Like it's just going to keep escalating because it, it often does. Right. And so we talk a lot in this country about how, you know, what is the most dangerous time for a woman when she flees an abusive relationship in the few, you know, those few months afterwards. But why is that dangerous? Because you're being stalked. Like we need to start using the proper language for it, right? Like that is what is actually lethal is the stalking. Have we begun to take that any more seriously over the past several years, decade? I know you and others have made it a point of sharing stories and calling out just how, frankly, useless law enforcement can be in those situations. Canada has one of the worst responses to stalking of any country in the Western world. We don't have a single organization dedicated to victims. We don't have public awareness campaigns. We don't have adequate training. I actually went and trained many probation and parole officers in Ontario after the triple femicides in 2015 to get them to understand that if you think that your client is stalking a victim, that victim's life is in danger and you need to act accordingly. So here in Canada, we, we do a lot of really great work around consent and sexual violence and intimate partner violence. Like we're, we're, we have a robust system that's chronically underfunded, but it's there. But for stalking, it is a giant void. Like there is nothing. And so we've had increased, increased awareness over the past few years around online harassment and really starting to take that more seriously, which is so great and so important. But the cliched in real life, dude watching you from the window, like these things still happen a tremendous amount and there's no conversation happening about that and there are no services. So of course, police response is also inadequate because they're not getting pressure from the community as they are around other issues. So tell me about last summer's inquest into the triple femicide, because obviously uh, stalking played a role in that. And what was the focus of that inquest and how did it proceed? I mean, you testified. What did you tell them? It was such a powerful experience that actually some of the uh, community members who helped organize the inquest have actually been traveling across the country, teaching other communities how you can have a legal formal, meaning all of the checks and balances inquest that is compassionate and understands that you're going into a community that has been deeply traumatized and you want to get to the bottom of what happened to make sure it doesn't happen to someone else. But there is an inherent need for humanity in that process. And so it was a tremendously difficult process. I had not been in a courtroom since I tried to take my stalker to jail. So it was a very difficult process, but it was very humbling to see a jury of community members. Like these were community members who had been impacted by these femicides, really listening to our testimony and taking it seriously. And so as a result, they came up with 86 recommendations, some very, very precise, some a little bit more vague. Um, and they brought that to both the provincial and the federal government to say, okay, here at a community level, we're engaged. We want to do stuff. 
but we are limited in what we can do. And so we need provincial and federal governments to hop on board and take these recommendations seriously and not have it be the upteenth like royal commission that's sitting on a shelf somewhere, which is like a classic Canadian move. <laughs> but instead, like, let's action these items and let's prevent this from happening to someone else. That was going to be my next question. I mean, we've spoken a lot about various inquests and inquiries on this show, and there's a wide gap between the recommendations that are often made and the action that's often taken. This inquest released its report, I believe, at the end of last summer or around then. So this is, you know, about a year later. Uh, what actually has been done since then? Well, at the community level, municipally here in Ontario, it has been beautiful to see rural communities and big communities like Ottawa and Toronto declaring intimate partner violence an epidemic. That was the first recommendation that the inquest made, which was provocative. It was powerful and it's being implemented at the municipal level, including in tiny communities, which I think is so beautiful. Unfortunately, the provincial government did not agree with the recommendations and in fact gave what I think is a downright insulting response, which is epidemics are just for diseases. So we can't label violence against women an epidemic because it's just for diseases, which is absolutely ludicrous. Ah, oh, the old technically answer. The old, yes, yeah, love that. Love a little semantics. Uh, I mean, I mean it, it doesn't, you know, we have an epidemic of opioid overdoses in this country. Anything public health related can be an epidemic. So that was very, very disappointing when the government had a year to respond to the recommendations. And this June, they came back with this absolutely lukewarm really disrespectful, I think, response that didn't take the recommendation seriously. So it was very encouraging when the federal government had a much stronger response. And that really got, I think, people fired up again to think, okay, we're not really doing well at the provincial level, but municipally and federally, we're going to make movement. And then, you know, the province is just going to have to catch up. This is why uh, we're speaking to you today, because the justice minister wrote a letter summarizing the federal government's position on the inquest and what they were planning to do about it. I'm not going to ask you to, you know, read us entire parts of this letter. It's quite long. But can you maybe summarize the key takeaways here uh, in terms of what the federal government is acknowledging and, again, you know, what they actually plan to do about it? I'm actually going to read you... Two sentences that will summarize the entire tone. It's so powerful. So gender-based violence, including intimate partner violence, is unacceptable and has no place in our country. The government of Canada is committed to ending the gender-based violence epidemic in all its forms and is working to address any gaps in the criminal code to ensure a robust justice system response. And they say, I welcome the inquest, jury's recommendations, and I agree that more must be done to protect against intimate partner violence. That is... I mean, I cannot, like, I just cannot convey how powerful that language is because it shows so much of what we experience as those of us who fight against men's violence against women is dismissal, minimizing, you're being uh, dramatic, you're sensationalizing. I mean, I've been called a grifter for talking about this stuff. Like, it's just, the, the level of backlash is just truly unbelievable. And so to have the provincial government basically kind of take a similar tone and saying, we don't think there's an issue, we're already doing enough, you know, we can't call it that because it's not a disease. Like, it just felt like same old, same old, nobody is listening to us. But to have, you know, I was working in that community when those triple femicides had happened. I had just concluded my own experience of being stalked for over a decade by my ex. 
I was in my feelings in that moment. I was in that community. I know how much it meant to them. And so to have the federal government stand up and say, you are correct. And here's what we're already doing to work with those recommendations. Here's what we're going to do next. I mean, that just absolutely boosted everybody up to thinking, okay, we're not alone. You know, people are listening to us. And there's so much going on in the world right now that it's even harder to kind of get your voice in because frankly, literally the world is on fire. (laughs) Um, But it's easy to forget that like intimate partner violence continues and the more fragile and volatile the world is, the more dangerous it is to be a woman. When you speak about the negative feedback you've gotten for speaking out about this, and I guess the folks who look for ways to diminish the impact of femicide and intimate partner violence, there's one aspect in particular I want to ask you about, and I've seen you talk about it before, which is, you know, the idea that men die overwhelmingly more than women from acts of violence. And that's why this shouldn't be an epidemic specifically directed at femicide. Yeah, so the old, uh, the new retort, but it's really an old ideology, which is that women just complain too much and that actually it's safer to be a woman. And the two kind of arguments that I hear and my colleagues hear is exactly as you said, men are more likely to be killed than women are. And women's murders are solved at a higher rate than men's. And that on the surface sounds like, oh my God, yes, like the incels are correct. Like, oh my God, you know, but then you got to take a beat and you think, okay, who is killing men? Other men. Who is killing women? Men. So again, I can't solve something that I'm not responsible for, right? Men experience extremely high rates of violence from other men. But this bizarre twisting of equality is like, oh, well, men kill women, ergo women kill men. They don't, right? They just, so men are experiencing incredibly high rates from other men. And therefore, as a woman, I'm not being heard when I talk about what men are up to, but then it's like, so you have to fix it, you know? And additionally, it is true that women's murders have a higher solve rate than men's because it's most often the husband, the ex-husband, the boyfriend. So, I mean, like, it's the baseline of all true crime, right? Like, it's the the premise of Gone Girl is like, it's always the husband because it's true, right? And so, of course, it's easier, quote unquote, to solve some women's murders. But again, if you're looking at racialized women, look at Picton, look at all of these horrific things that happen to Indigenous women. So it's this, there's a grain of truth to that argument, but it is absolutely blown out of proportion. And so, yeah, the the response to something like this, which is Canada saying, we have a problem. Like, nobody should be upset about this. We should all be like, yes, we have a problem. Let's fix it. And instead, we're having to wade through this, well, what about what's happening to men? And, you know, it's just such a distraction and it's exhausting when the data backs up that, Here in Ontario, where I live, a woman is getting murdered every single week by a man who knows her, oftentimes a man who claims to love her. How is that not an emergency? What happens next or what should happen next? Obviously, declaring something an epidemic, um, as powerful as that might be, doesn't accomplish much without concrete policy behind it. Um, You're at the heart of this. What are some actual steps the federal government could take that would tackle the problem rather than acknowledging it. Yeah, absolutely. You're correct, right? Acknowledgement is just the first step. Now we got to action it. And so what is encouraging is what we've been able to accomplish at the community level. We're already on it. So we're already making progress. You know, the first recommendation has, we can check that box off. We've declared it. But the fact that the letter that the government submitted already had concrete things around 
changing Canada's stalking law. So stalking is called criminal harassment in Canada, revisiting that law. It has only been illegal to stalk someone in Canada since 1993. It's been 30 years. I didn't know that. Yeah. And it was literally because of intimate partner violence. It was women in shelters saying he didn't technically hit her, but he's doing this other thing that like we need to start looking at. So we have 30 years of, of precedent. Let's look at some tweaks, right? So that was my recommendation at the inquest was tweaking, tiny tweak to the criminal code around criminal harassment that would make a tremendous difference. Uh, the government has already, the federal government has already been doing work with some other Western countries looking at adding things like coercive control as a new element of the criminal code. That work's already ongoing and that was part of the recommendations. So we're seeing, you know, increased training for law enforcement. You know, we know things like Rana Ambrose's bill a few years ago as part of that. So there are some really tangible things that the government's already looking at, including, you know, gun control, mm-hmm. looking at uh, both what happened at the inquest and the Mass Casualty Commission in Nova Scotia. Like the letter looks at both, which I also think is really powerful because it shows that the government sees the connection of this is a problem across Canada. It happened in Nova Scotia. It happened in Renfrew. Let's look at the concretely. Now, is it contentious as heck to talk about adding new things to the criminal code? For sure. Is this the best time in Canadian history for us to have a conversation about gun control? I would say no. So people are very polarized. But there are like tangible, concrete things in this letter that show me that they want to build on existing work. And that is always a sign of uh, heading in the right direction, as far as I'm concerned. Um, Because, you know, the old adage that politicians would rather cut a ribbon than repair a bridge. This really speaks to me as let's fix Let's tweak the tiny things that need to be tweaked. But in big picture, we have to continue to hold the government accountable. And that includes provincial governments, because they do have uh, a tremendous role in this conversation. It can't just be community and, and federal, right? Education, health, all of these things that touch the provincial government, we need you at the table. Julie, thank you so much for this. And thank you for all the work you do. The last thing I want to ask you, just for our audience who is listening, I know You run some amazing harassment intervention seminars that are totally free, and you have a lot of other resources uh, for people interested in getting involved in this work. Where should people go if they're interested in that? Yeah, if you are looking to learn how to intervene, if you witness something, free trainings, they're just an hour. I have tons of different resources that folks can access. So you can find me on X as long as it continues to exist or Blue Sky or my website, yellowmanto.com. There are so many resources in Canada that exist that are free, but people just have to have a little bit of initiative to go and seek them out. But you don't have to reinvent the wheel. If you are touched by this conversation and you are fired up about doing something, there's people waiting to work with you. Thank you again. And I think you're also the very first person to refer to it as X on this program. (laughs) I mean, what can I say? I'm provocative. (laughs) Julie Lalonde who has done so much hard work on this file. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us, hello, at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can call us, 416-935-5935. Leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode, or any episode, or what you'd like to hear in future episodes. The Big Story is available wherever you get your podcasts. Please give it a like, a follow, a subscribe, a rating, a review, whatever is available. We appreciate it all. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. 
We'll talk tomorrow.